Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Jason Zygmunt, who is the former chef and owner, founder of Set Sun, which was a pop-up concept that he started in Nashville, Tennessee a couple years ago and basically turned it all the way into a full-blown brick-and-mortar restaurant inside the Van Dyke Bed and Beverage Hotel, which is over in the East Nashville area where that tornado hit a couple years ago. But he actually shut down the the pop-up restaurant a couple years ago. It was a pretty disastrous kind of opening, not from a standpoint of, you know, food not going right or service or anything like that. It was as soon as they opened... Then they were shut down because of the tornado. Then once they reopened, shut down because of coronavirus. And once they reopened in like August or so of uh, 2020, it just wasn't enough. You know, they're too behind kind of the eight ball and, and wound up, he wound up shutting it down early last year, 2021. I think maybe definitely the first kind of quarter. I don't remember off the top of my head if it was March or April or what. He is now in Dallas. Uh, he's actually going to be the new chef at Sassetta, which is going to reopen this fall. They closed, moved locations, uh, so they're revamping a new space and everything like that. So he's going to be the executive chef there. But uh, he's also doing his Black Cactus Salsa, which you can find on Instagram too as well. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at jason.zygmont, Z-Y-G-M-O-N-T, and also at black underscore cactus underscore d-a-l uh, that's the salsa thing and you can place orders through instagram and everything like that if you want to order some salsa sassetta on instagram is at sassetta underscore dallas for that restaurant there they haven't really posted anything because they don't open until the fall of 2022 but really interesting conversation jason i mean georgia boy kind of and then kind of followed in footsteps eventually followed his way into cooking interned uh, staged at noma uh for basically six months uh, worked at Per Se. Uh, he has stories from that uh, experience too as well. Kind of winds up back in Georgia, then becomes Chef of the Year for Eater Nashville. I think it was like 2018. And he's got like kind of the dish of the year and everything like that. And his career kind of really takes off. And then coronavirus happens and it's another lull. And now he's going to be uh, in Dallas uh, running a restaurant, which is awesome to see. But his food's amazing. I mean, everything's got like a little twist to it. You know, you see the menu, uh, especially at Set Sun when we were there. And and everything looks kind of straightforward, like you know what you're going to get and everything like that. And then once it actually comes to the table, there's always a little twist in it. You know, the biggest twist that kind of stood out was I think there was like an apple panna cotta and just the texture and everything. They had like little very, very fine kind of cubes of, of the apple in there too as well. And it was just everything's always got like a little twist with his cuisine. So it's really interesting. He's got a great story and great background. So definitely wanted to, to finally have him on uh, when we had a chance before he kind of gets back in a full-blown swing of running a restaurant here. Uh, is already in the process of doing stuff, but once they open kind of this fall. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Jason Zygmunt, the new executive chef over at Sassetta in Dallas, Texas. Thanks again. For coming on the podcast, taking some time. I know you're pretty busy. You got a lot going on over the past year, which we'll get into. One of the reasons, you know, I've, I definitely wanted to have you on. We were able to visit Set Sun in its glory when it was in the hotel and you actually had it in the brick and mortar and everything before it closed. And I want to get there because that was all, um, we'll get there later, but that was a whole thing with everything that happened and not really anything bad. It was just terrible timing and circumstances with stuff that happened. So, I'll start with you where I start with everybody that comes on the podcast. You know, how did you first get started cooking? I mean, I know originally you're from Philly, but how did you first get started with restaurants? It's funny. I've begun to think about and started kind of writing a book. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Food was always kind of around. Like my grandmother on my dad's side is a great cook, but that was really it. You know, I'm 36 now. 
the first impetus or really where I fell in love with food was TV. I mean, I great chefs of the world when I came up from school and high school was on PBS. Iron Chef America came to the States in 98. Emerald Live was on and then Food Network took off, you know, so it was like I became very interested and just enamored with the idea of chefdom, really, more than food generally. And um, it just seemed very interesting to me, but it never seemed like a professional career. Like it wasn't, I never thought like, oh, I can do that, you know, as a career choice. It was just kind of more this thing that happened somewhere else. I was a server in a restaurant in high school very briefly, but again, never thought about cooking professionally. I ended up going to the University of Georgia, studied philosophy, was very close to becoming a lawyer, kind of decided against it. My brother's an attorney um, and it really wasn't what I wanted to do. I made the very odd decision that I'm sure made my father question my insanity. I left school and got a job that paid minimum wage in a kitchen in Chapel Hill, North Carolina with no professional culinary experience. Literally, I think it was 7.25 an hour at the time. And that was it. Like I, you know, it was just a serious and you know, unquestioned leap of faith and just kind of was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And um, thankfully, I was pretty good at it um, and didn't have to go back on any plan B or anything. But it was very much just kind of jumped into it when I had no other options left because I didn't want to, what can I do with a philosophy degree? It's teach, write books or become a lawyer. And I didn't really want to do any of those. So started cooking. With the law degree in law school and everything, you know, I've had a couple people that have kind of gone down that path and they get right up to previously a few weeks ago, we had a chef, Jordan Anthony Brown, who's in Cincinnati, not too far from here. And he got right up to the point where he was going to law school. For some reason, it seems like people get right up to that line where it's like you have to fully commit to law school. And there's something like, what is that? Is it just like you learn more about kind of what the actual job of being a lawyer is instead of, you know, maybe this stuff that you see on TV? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think everyone's idea of being a lawyer is like criminal litigation, right? You're in a courtroom, you're arguing your case, you're doing all of that. My wife is a patent attorney, so she sits at a computer all day and types legalese. And like yesterday, she had to review 40 pages of legal documents. I have great amounts of respect for her that she can do that, but I would lose my mind. I would, I would blow my brains out if I had to do that every day. And I studied philosophy because I, I enjoyed the process of critical thinking. I've been just thinking, you know, thinking things through, which I think has served me well as a, you know, professional chef. But the you know, my brother's an environmental lawyer. I knew some other attorneys. The day-to-day -day life that they had is not what I want to do. Uh, you know, office and, you know, office culture, just being behind a desk was, you know, something that I think I figured out early on was not going to work for me. And the, you know, studying philosophy kind of opened my mind to the possibility of a, you know, less common lifestyle. It's actually kind of weird. I, there's several chefs that have, like, philosophy degrees and then ditch the traditional path. Like, why? I think Wiley Dufresne studied philosophy. I think, you know, some other big name chefs have, you know, studied philosophy. And it's just like, kind of gets you thinking. And then it's like, you know, I chose this alternate career path because since I was probably eight years old, I had been obsessed with food. And like, it was weird. Like, I would read the CIA cookbook, like their main textbook, just for fun when I was a kid, because my dad happened to have it laying around. It was like, looking back, it's like, well, that was kind of strange. And predetermined that I would be in food somehow. But yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to stay away from corporate culture as much as possible because, like I said, I think I would have lost my mind. I think food offers the ability to be, you know, creative with serious, you know, critical thinking ability. 
not just in the creativity aspect, but also the running of the business. I mean, it's the most challenging thing you can do. Literally, I mean, that first day of service, I worked in a kitchen. I said to myself, I will do this for the rest of my life. There's nothing I will ever do besides working in restaurants. Thankfully, I made the right choice, but it was it was touch and go for a little while there. <laughs> so your brother was already in the Chapel Hill area, right? And then you moved out there and got a job at a restaurant out there. I think it was like an Italian restaurant. Was it inside like a hotel? Yeah, so he was finishing up law school at Chapel Hill. My grandmother actually lived in Cary, North Carolina, which is just outside of Raleigh. But the hotel was called the Siena Hotel, and the restaurant was called Il Palio. Nothing special about the restaurant, but it was like the first restaurant I ever worked at. I mean, I, I moved there. I literally, I've done this a couple times in my career. I sent emails to like the best restaurants in the area and was like, look, I have no experience. I just want to be working in kitchens. I will mop the floor. I will do, you know, I will, you know, clean pots and pans. I don't care. What can I do to get in the door? And I interviewed at a couple places and a couple places offered them, offered me a position, but Santa Hotel seemed like the best option. So, you know, started working there. But things really changed when um, there was a chef changeover probably six months into me working there. This guy named Adam Rose came down from New York and he had been working for Marco Canora at Hearth, still one of my favorite restaurants to this day. You know, he came down and it was like we started cooking like recipes. Like we cooked a recipe out of the Babo cookbook, like Mario Batali's book from way back in the day. It was a thing, it was like stored fish puttanesca, but it was like, holy shit, we're cooking something like that I saw in a cookbook and now we're doing it for service. And it was like, we were cooking like, you know, New York food. And I came up cooking when the only restaurants that counted were New York, San Francisco, maybe some Chicago restaurants. Like no one else was like actually cooking real food, quote unquote. So it was very exciting because like our son was his wife down from New York. Adam came down and we were like, we were starting to like really cook. And it was like my first exposure to that. But yeah, I mean, that was a, it was an interesting experience. It, it was a, an odd place to start my career, but um, it was good. I mean, we, it went from, you know, like kind of frozen raviolis in the freezer to actually making all the fresh pasta. And that was, it was a cool transition to see. And it kind of set me on a determined path because he eventually sent me to work in New York for the same chef. So it worked out well, but it was an odd place to start for sure. Yeah, so he wound up hooking you up with like a stage with Marco, right? Because you, from what I could find, you were doing a bunch of different stages in New York, one of which was also going to be with Mario Batali too, correct? Yeah, so it was really interesting. I He sent me up there. I had cousins living there at the time. They were in Carroll Gardens and I was crashing with them and I just tooling around the city. Like I was 21 years old. I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. So I was just walking around and I went because I had a, I was doing the stage at Harf. But the job was that he had available was at his second restaurant. It doesn't exist anymore. It was called NCMA. And it was in the Michelangelo Hotel. It was in Midtown. It was across the street from, like, I think it was the Mamma Mia, the production on Broadway. So it was, like, right in the middle of Broadway. And total tourist area. It took me 25 minutes on the train to get up there. But um, anyway, I walked to Hearth the day before my stage. Marco's walking down the street with a whole lamb like over his shoulder, like, I don't know where he was coming from, but he was just walking down, you know, First Avenue to the restaurant. And I stopped and I was like, hey, I'm Jason, I'm staging with you tomorrow. And he looked at me like I was insane. Like he was like, I was assuming he was the one that coordinated stages. Um, and he was like, oh, hey, great. Was, he was like, where else are you staging? I said, I'm trying to get a stage at Babo too. And he was like, oh, you don't, you don't want to work for that asshole. Come work for me. Just don't worry about that. Don't even try to get a stage. I was like, okay. okay. Um, and I was just, you know, 
completely naive and not manipulatable, but like I, I listened to that advice. So I staged there. He offered me a job. I was like, sick. I got a job in New York. You know, he told me on my, you know, on my interview when I staged, he was like, look, you've only been cooking for a year. There's going to be a significant learning curve. It's going to be really hard. Uh, but if you want to do it, I'll give you a chance. I very much jumped at that opportunity. But yeah, I mean, he was hard to work for. It was a brutal second job. I'll say that. So with that situation, with having multiple stages, what would be the best course for a chef if they were going through that now and they had, you know, two, three, four stages set up in a city and then, you know, they do one of them and the chef's like, no, you can work here. Like, should they take that job in hand or should they go through the other stages? Oh, if I could talk to younger me, I would have, you know, gone and tried other stages. I came up at a very odd time in kitchens. I think that stage happened at the end of 2006, maybe beginning of 2007. It was still very old school. The kitchens were very hard. They were very aggressive. I mean, there were no HR departments that you could go talk to somebody and be like, you know, you know plates thrown, you know, obscenities screamed all the time. You know, now the culinary world is just so different. But yeah, I think take your time, especially now because it's, you know, it's a cook's market. You know, everyone needs cooks desperately. So find the restaurants that you think will be great. Go stage at them for a couple of days. You know, see which environment seems the most fitting, what chef you like, what cuisine you want to learn how to cook. I think if I could go back and give myself one piece of advice, it'd be, to be a bit more patient. I was in such a rush as a young cook to work for the best guys, you know, move to a new restaurant after working somewhere a year. I think taking your time and being a bit more patient with it is, would be my best piece of advice. So yeah, go do a couple stages and see what you like best. I, I think I ran into the problem of there's an opportunity here. I need to take it. If I don't, who knows if I'll get something as good. And you know, like, I mean, we, when I was there, we got a Michelin star when I was cooking in the kitchen and that was a crazy, it was, it was incredible. So like, I'm not regretful of the decision I made. I think I would have lasted longer in New York had I worked at a different restaurant or a different chef. New York and I have a bad relationship. I don't, I don't live there well. I love visiting, but especially for the time, I mean, I made $12 an hour. I was living in deep Brooklyn. It was, I mean, it was like close to 30, 40 minutes on the subway train. I would get out the subway at Rockefeller Center and I would sit in the bathroom of the Starbucks, the subterranean Starbucks for 15 minutes, having a panic attack, trying to convince myself to go up into the kitchen because I knew Marco was going to shred me that day. So it was, like, it was just a very hard life. I think there were probably opportunities at other kitchens that would have made my experience better from Monday morning quarterbacking at this point. When they get the Michelin star, how big of a deal was that? Because, I mean, that's, you know, probably the first or second year that they have the guide. I'm imagining because it was 06, I think 06, 07 when the guide came. It was really early. Yeah. You know, looking back on it, did you like fully understand what the Michelin star was? I mean, you know, obviously you know about it, but to look back on it now, like you're so young, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. We got it. Or was it? Oh, yeah, this is a really big deal. So, you know, there's another experience in my career that I could, you know, relate it to, like we can talk about more later, but like I was lucky enough to be working at Noma when they were named number one restaurant in the world for the third time and comparing, you know, that's different than a Mission Star. They're not exactly equatable, but it was a fleeting moment of excitement for me for getting the Michelin star in TMA because it was, I mean, it was a huge deal. Um, I think I had an idea of what it meant, but at the same time, I was 
you know, on my way out of the restaurant. Like I was just, I was mentally and physically just so exhausted. So my, my state of being contributed to not fully understanding what it was. I was ready to be done there. And it was only a month or two before I left that the star came out. Yeah, I don't think I had a full understanding of what it was and what it meant. It was my first real kitchen job, you know, outside of my first one. It was an incredible experience and the food was so technical, even for, you know, relatively rustic Tuscan Italian food, which is what Marco is known for. But it was, I think the impact of working at the restaurant was a good one, but the impact of earning that star is only one that I can really recognize in retrospect. It was probably like, they probably came in the kitchen and said, congratulations, we had a toast of champagne, and then it was finished peeling the asparagus for service. But I mean, that was a crazy kitchen, because at the time when I was working there, Aaron, who's the owner of Rose's Luxury and, you know, in D.C., one of the most acclaimed chefs in the United States today, and he worked Garmanger, and I was on hot apps. Like, he had just come from working at Momofuku, so I was like... There was a guy named Brian Moxie, who's the head chef of a bunch of restaurants in St. Louis. And like everyone that worked in that kitchen is now somebody. So it was just like, it was a crazy place to work. I was thrown onto hot apps. I didn't even work Garmanger. Marco threw me on hot app station. I was just losing my mind trying to get five cases of asparagus peeled every day and hand mincing onions for sofrito that, you know, a Michelin star wasn't exactly on my radar as, you know, the newest line cook in the kitchen. <laughs> So after that, you wind up going to Barcelona, right? To work, I think, for Chef Fermi Puig at Droma? Yep. So I mentioned my dad having that CIA handbook previously. Uh, he bought the French Laundry cookbook the day it came out. And it's probably, like a lot of chefs my age, one of the most influential, you know, texts we've ever laid eyes on. I mean, it changed restaurants, it changed cookbooks, it changed everything um, in our world. I read it and... In the back of my head, you know, there's several sections in there, but the one that's most important, he says something like, you know, at some point you need to go to Europe and, you know, you got to go stage over there. So it was like kind of fashioning my, somewhat fashioning my career after the, you know, nuggets of wisdom that Thomas Keller put into that book. And it was like, all right, you know, I've cooked for a couple of years. I, you know, okay at it. It's time to go to Europe, you know, work for whoever I can and, you know, learn. Um, you know, I'd never been out of the country. You know, I, I didn't grow up like Bourdain going to Lyon, France with his parents and, you know, getting tucked away in a hotel room while they go eat at three Michelin star restaurants. You know, I had a very suburban upbringing, but it was like, all right, I've done New York. That was way outside of my comfort zone. Now let's go somewhere where I don't know anyone. I don't know the style of food. You know, I think I chose Barcelona. I wanted to get as close to LBE as I possibly could and see kind of their influence. But getting into LBE was impossible at the time. I mean, it's like you probably had, you know, 10,000 people trying to get into stage for every season. So I went to Barcelona and it was an interesting experience because I didn't have a work visa. I just emailed, again, emailed around to all the chefs and was like, look, I will do anything. I just want to be in the kitchen. And they were like, do you speak Spanish? I was like, kind of. Sure. <laughs> Which was like, you know, I, I, I did not speak Spanish. I spoke U.S. kitchen Spanish, you know, barely. Almost everybody said no, um, except for Droma, which was a rather interesting, interesting experience. The funny thing is, Fermi um, was one of the original chefs that opened El Bui, like co-chef with Perinadria, but he left uh, before they, you know, became the most influential restaurant like ever and became the chef of Droma. Uh, and it was very kind of traditional 
continental European cooking with, you know, some heavy Spanish influences. It was like whole, it was like sous vide leg of goat with like perfect Robichon potatoes. I mean, amazing. And there were some, you know, it was, but there were some very rich issues. It was like poached langoustine with truffle raviolis and like just very classical preparations. So it wasn't like exactly what I had gone to Spain to look for or what to learn. So, but it was still, you know, Mission Star Kitchen, amazing quality of product, you know, incredible experience. I think the most education I got over there was from going out and eating at restaurants. You know, there was um, Alchemia, uh, Satis, which is still a restaurant. They have two Michelin stars in Barcelona, incredible restaurants. And it was just a life experience. You know, I was a, you know, a relatively solitude loner kid that became a line cook and going to Barcelona was like, all right, you can't do that. Like if you want to have fun experiences, you got to get out there and do stuff. So uh, it kind of was the experience that kind of pushed me into adulthood, you know, at the young age of 23. But yeah, I mean, it was, I knew I had to go to Europe at some point and it was, you know, I don't know why I chose that city specifically, but I ended up learning a lot. What was the biggest difference between working in not necessarily a fine dining restaurant that you were at in New York City, but elevated cuisine there, kind of working in New York, and then also compared to working in Barcelona, you know, both, I think, had Michelin stars. But what was kind of the biggest difference that kind of caught you by surprise between the two? Technique-wise, it was pretty similar, and that was shocking. Like, I thought it would be, like, two different worlds. I think the most shocking thing for me was the how different Spanish culture is generally. Our lunch service started at one o'clock in the afternoon and we would finish at 3.30. We'd get off, it was split shifts, and we would come back to the restaurant at seven and dinner service would start at 9 p.m. and we would be done with dinner service at midnight. And it was just a, a whole different schedule. In terms of the kitchen culture, it was relatively similar, but it was really funny because my last week there, you know, I was sitting there with like the only two guys that spoke English in the kitchen as they had long since figured out that I didn't speak Spanish. Uh, we were talking about restaurants and like, they didn't know about like the American restaurant scene. I mean, it was like 2007, you know, the internet's there, but like, I don't know how much they were using it, but like I told them about like the French laundry and per se had just opened, you know, a few years before. And I was like, I was like, do you guys not know who Thomas Keller is? And they were like, no, it was like, okay, that's fucking crazy because he's like the most influential chef ever on our side of the Atlantic. So it was like a really cool, like building relationships and with, you know, cooks over there is like them telling me about like, you know, these old school, you know, two Mission Star Spanish restaurants in the middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere, what I would later learn to be San Sebastian. It's like, you know, one of the fine dining meccas of the world. He's talking to me and telling me about Arzac, Juan Marie Arzac, and I'm telling him about, I don't know, like telling me about Monresa in California and like having these, it's like the eye-opening experience. It's like, oh, cooks are exactly the same everywhere. And it was just like, you just happen to be in the European mindset. But no, I mean, it was, it was, I think the most shocking thing was that how, how similar it was. I think I was going over there expecting a completely different world. And I was just like, nope, cooks are cooks everywhere you are. You want to geek out about food and talk about the new shit that's happening and gawk over pictures of food online and look at cookbooks. So it was like, you know, it, it was reassuring in a way. It was like, I can do this basically. <laughs> then you wind up moving back to Atlanta, right? Were you in Barcelona for three months, six months? Four and a half or five, something like that. I overstayed my visa. I know that. <laughs> so I was lucky to get out of the country. Yeah, but I moved to, back to Atlanta. So I'm actually originally 
I was born in Philadelphia, but grew up in Atlanta, in Alpharetta, just north of the city. And I went to college at the University of Georgia. So Southern is my, South is my adopted home. Yeah, I moved back to Atlanta. I essentially came home from Europe because I ran out of money. Would have stayed longer if I could have, but came back to Atlanta where uh, my dad was living in crash with them for a couple of weeks and, you know, was looking for work. Atlanta was in a interesting transitional period. Atlanta's always been a city looking for an identity, I feel like. Has found it in the past few years, but at the time, the restaurant scene was dominated by places like Houston's and like other restaurants that were, you know, it was very heavily Southern. You know, it was like, you know, shrimp and grits on every menu, everything. Um, and I came back and I think this was like, I forget which season of Top Chef happened. That is like four or five, maybe even six, but Kevin was on there. Another guy named Eli was on there. And I'm forgetting the other chef's name, who was at Puerto Vida at the time, Hector. We're all on Top Chef one season. So there's three Atlanta chefs. And I sent them all emails and was like, hey, you know, I'm a cook. I just moved back from Spain. I'm looking for work. Oh, actually, before I came back to Atlanta, I did like a week-long stint at Blue Hill Stone Barns, too. But that was very brief, and they didn't offer me a job, so it didn't impress them. Um, <laughs> emailed them. was like, look, I've been doing this for a few years. Staj in Europe, worked in New York. They all answered my emails, um, and I went and staged for Eli and Kevin. I think that was back to your earlier question of would you recommend people doing multiple stages? I think I'm going to answer the, your experience that I forgot about. Definitely take more than one stage because no hate on Eli. I don't think I would be where I am today if I had taken the job at the restaurant he was at. Not because of the food they were serving or anything like that, but it was, there was just a certain feeling in that restaurant and the kitchen that I don't think would have gelled very well with me. And I realized that when I staged at, you know, Kevin's restaurant, Woodfire Grill, it was a blast. Like it was the first time I had worked in a kitchen that I was having a ridiculous amount of fun, especially for a job that, like I went in at 10 a.m. every day and we left at 12.30, 1 a.m. And we were open five days a week. So I worked every, I worked every day that we were open, you know, working ridiculous hours. And this was the time when there was shift pay. So I was making like 100, 120 bucks a day. You know, you're like you're just shy of 10 bucks an hour. But it was incredible work. I mean, Kevin is to this day, one of the most impressive chefs I've worked for. He has a palate that is, I think, unparalleled. He is incredibly talented. And we did stuff in that kitchen that was just so much fun. And because he was on Top Chef, we offered a five and a seven course safety menu. We had an a la carte menu, of course, but he was on Top Chef. He was like fan favorite. He was super charismatic. Everyone loved him. So when everyone that came into the restaurant wanted to do tasting menu. So ostensibly we were like the only tasting menu only restaurant in Atlanta at the time. It was like, you know, we were cooking in the kitchen. It was just like, you know, fire 10 of these, then fire 10 of these. But it was all, it was relatively straightforward because you're doing 10 of the same plates and 10 of the same plate. So, you know, service wasn't that crazy difficult. It was just a blast. And it really kind of not only can it be like this intellectual pursuit and lots of hard work, but it can be a ton of fun. And that's kind of where I think my ideas of what cooking professionally could be. And I definitely owe that all to Kevin and working at Woodfire Grill. My next job after that was um, kind of the opposite experience. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I said it before, but I think the um, working in a restaurant is very important. You either learn how you want to run a restaurant or you learn exactly how you don't want to do it. 
Um, I worked at a place called Restaurant Eugene, which was chef by a guy named Linton Hopkins. But it was a negative work experience, I'll say that. The food is very good. I was a 24-year-old sous chef with basically no management experience that he handed the reins to and was like, go have fun. You know, I'm managing guys that are older than me, that don't want to listen to me. I don't know what I'm doing. And it was just, it was terrible. You know, we ended up, I worked there for nine months. By the end of it, was glad to have done it because I realized I am not ready for a serious management role. I don't know enough. I'm not experienced enough. And it was an eye-opening experience. I was, you know, glad to be gone from there. The first two restaurants in Atlanta, I definitely learned the good and the bad. It was a very interesting juxtaposition. So then from there, I think you wind up at Empire State South, Brian Smith, Hugh Ashison. With all your stops in Atlanta, did you have like a specific goal in mind at each place or was it just like, I heard about this place, they look like they're doing cool food, let me go work there kind of deal? Yeah, well, Woodfire, I needed a job quickly. Um, and, you know, I applied there because Kevin was doing very interesting food. Top Chef was intriguing. He seemed like a really nice guy. And then my, you know, trajectory or my goal has always been to try and work for the best chefs possible. You know, once I got into Atlanta and kind of understood the food scene, you know, my goal was to work for at a better restaurant. Not saying that Woodfire wasn't a great restaurant, but, you know, there are certain levels, obviously. And I went to work at Restaurant Eugene specifically to work for Ryan Smith, who you mentioned previously. And my first day was his last day in the kitchen. So that was a rude awakening when I got there. And then nine months, um, you know, after I finished at Restaurant Eugene, the day that I ended up quitting that job, I went to Empire State South. I sat down at the bar. I think I still had my chef's coat on, something that is ridiculous to think about, wearing my chef's coat to a different restaurant. I had a glass of bourbon in front of me, and Ryan came out of the kitchen. He sits down next to me in the bar, and he's like, I, I'm surprised you made it that long. Do you need a job? And I said, yep. And I started the next day as a line cook for him there. It was very funny. The first day, there's this guy named Brad that was training me on a station. And we were like five, 10 minutes into service. And I was cooking everything because I knew Ryan's food. And he was like, I feel like I'm just in your way. I'm going to leave. <laughs> he just left the line. And I ended up working for him there for, you know, over a year, year and a half. But it, it's funny. This is a very interesting point in my career. I, you know, I, I think every young cook goes through this phase. I was an egotistical asshole. I was... I thought I was literally God's gift to cooking. You know, I didn't make a ton of friends in the kitchen at that time. I had plenty of friends in the kitchen, but I was, I was difficult to work with. I, you know, I finally graduated to fish station. which was my favorite thing to cook then. And still, I remember this is how cocky I was. I remember Hugh was on the line, you know, expediting one day, which he rarely did. And I think it was a piece of red snapper and skin on and I cooked it and it was perfectly crisp beautiful you know we put all the stuff up on the line and then the sous chef and chef on the other side played it and i put it up and i'm like how does that look he's like it looks good and i said I i'm not here for good what's wrong with it <laughs> just like looking back it's like what the fuck was i thinking uh he looks at me he goes it looks a little dry you could brush it with a touch of olive oil or like clarified butter before you put it up i said okay every time and i was like i was taking i was doing more than like what the like what Ryan and Hugh would wanted like in the French Andrew cookbook there's a very interesting section how to get perfectly crisp skin on fish you salt it you let it sit for a couple minutes you take a spatula and you scrape all the moisture out that you can and that salt off of it and then you season and then you cook it I was doing that without being told to do it 
And the sous chef looked at me one day and was like, did Ryan tell you to do that? I was like, no, but it gets crispy skin. He was like, okay. And it was just like, I just, I was thought I knew better than everybody. You know, I, there was one day I told a sous chef, I was like, he was like, you're making the sweet potato puree. I was like, yeah. Um, okay. What are you putting in it? It's like, you know, onion, water, butter, old school French puree. And then I'm going to, you know, we seasoned every puree with like a touch of acid. It's like, and I'm going to do it with apple cider vinegar because, you know, apples are on the dish as well. And it's the only time Ryan ever yelled at me, he came over and was like, I didn't fucking tell you to change the vinegar. We only put citrus juice in the puree. Stop changing shit. It's like, okay, sorry, my bad. Looking back, it's like, he wasn't going to fire me. I was a good cook, but I just had the biggest ego in the world. I was, I was very difficult to work, to work with or to be an employee. But I, you know, I love that job. I, I think there's, for the time, it was the best kitchen in Atlanta by far. Like the talent that came through that kitchen. There's, you know, Ryan, obviously incredible. Myself, this guy named Chris Hathcock, who's the exec chef at Husk Savannah was in the kitchen. He was a sous chef. A guy named Kyle Giacovino. He owns a pizza restaurant in Savannah. Jeff Wall, who's a chef in California and in, uh, in Santa Cruz. Everybody runs their own kitchen now and is an exceptional cook. Like looking back, it is insane that everyone was in one kitchen at that time. We were cooking awesome food. Ryan was at the top of his game. I, I think it's a, a crime that Ryan doesn't have a James Beard Award or more than one nomination at this point. I think he was uh, exec for Linton and then exec for Hugh. He switched restaurants and was running both kitchens the year Linton and Hugh were co-awarded the James Beard Southeast Award. And they weren't running their kitchens at the time. Ryan was definitely the one running those kitchens and writing those menus. I think he's wildly underrated and should be much more well-known in the chef world than he is. Yeah, eventually, you know, what comes along with that kind of egotistical mindset that thankfully I, well, I think I've grown out of it, is you, you end up thinking you know more than everybody and you need to go somewhere else to learn more. Um, so I had a, a particularly bad night of service. Not, service was fine, but I was just getting, feeling negative. I thought I was stagnating, kind of plateauing in my career. Didn't think I had much more to learn there. So I did what I always do. And I I wrote emails to chefs asking for jobs, but this was the most ridiculous version of that. I literally emailed the 10 best restaurants in the world at the time and was like, I would like to come stage. You know, here's my resume. Again, I will give me a toothbrush and I will scrub the grout on the floor. Like, I don't care. I just want to be in the kitchen. I did not hear back from anybody for a week. And then finally, I got an email from Matt Orlando, who unbeknownst to me at the time, was the head chef of Noma. I get an email back, you know, was not expecting to hear back from Noma. And uh, he was like, sure, you know, we have some openings coming up. When do you want to come? How long can you stay? I reply back, thank you, Matt. I can be there this date and I want to stay as long as possible. And I didn't hear anything back for like two weeks. And the entire time I'm sweating, I'm like, what did I say? What, like, why am I not hearing back? Like, I just got a foot in the door at the best restaurant in the world. And I go online and I look at the website and I see that Matt Orlando is the executive chef of Noma. Is he pissed because I didn't say, hey, chef? Like, I referred to him by his first name. Like, I'm just, I'm spinning. Like, I'm like, what did I do? And he emails me back like another week later. So like three weeks after I got the initial email. I was like, sorry, I was in Japan with Renee. I lost track of time and now I'm just catching back. And it's like, 
of course you were doing something incredibly cool, like traveling through Japan with Rene Redepi. So he emailed me back. He was like, that date works. Be here a couple of days before. Come by for some paperwork and you'll get started. And, you know, that was, and needless to say, it turned what was a, uh, a rough patch of service uh, for me into a very exciting point in my career. You know, it was very interesting, but I, you know, I, I have to give it a, a shout out and give my father credit here because, um, you know, when that happens, the, the difficulty of doing something like that is that uh, it costs a ridiculous amount of money, like staging in Europe generally is expensive. Staging in a Scandinavian country is even more expensive because the taxes on non-citizens are insane. So like I was expecting to need like 40 grand for three months and I didn't have it at the time, but I, so I was emailing all these chefs. I was like, Hey, do you have prep shifts in the morning? Like what extra work can I pick up? And I told my dad, he's like, look, just figure out how to get there. We will figure out the rest. Just relax. And he, over the years, has made my life significantly easier. I feel very privileged to have been able to go and work at a place like Noma. And after getting there, I realized that basically, if you can afford to get there and live and work at that restaurant, they take you because they need the stages. The restaurant like can't exist without them. I felt very lucky to be able to go do it. At least at the time, because I mean, this is their original location before they built the new restaurant and everything. But it was something like, I think, 70 cooks. They would do 35 lunch covers, like 45 dinner covers. So it's like the two to one ratio, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think there were like 20 guys, maybe 20 cooks getting paid. I think it was probably closer to 15 or 18. That includes sous chef level. And there were at least 45 sausages. So yeah, you're talking 35 covers for lunch, which is accurate, and then 45 for dinner. There's more cooks than, yeah, it's almost two to one ratio for each service. And yeah, it was the original location. So, you know, two stories, there's no open flame allowed in the entire building because it used to be a whaling warehouse. So the walls are completely hydrated with whale fat. So if a flame hit it, it would go up in flames completely. It was a very interesting building, but yeah. So, I mean, it was, like I said, the restaurant couldn't exist without it because we were doing the first task of the day is you have 10 pots of lemon thyme herb that you have to pick not all of the herbs off of, just the tip off of every branch. And then the bases go back under the infrared to regrow. That's the first task of the day. So it's like 15 stages just with tweezers picking just the little tip of the lemon thyme plant off. They did a special, like for VIPs, it was a course where it was a fried threaded veal neck in the original cookbook. So you braise a veal neck and then you literally pick the individual threads of muscle tissue and you need an ungodly amount for a single bite and you do it for a four top and like you can be there with five other stages picking veal threads for two hours for one table's VIP course. It was just an incredible amount of, you know, work for uh, work power and labor that went into it. But it was the, the thing that made it magical working there, and it most certainly was that I would still be there if I could have gotten a Danish work visa. There's a guy that I staged with my first day. We started the same day. He is still there as a sous chef. You know, what makes it so magical is 
this intangible sense of teamwork and camaraderie that is just indescribable. Like Renee is an insane person and you, you know, I don't think you become the number one chef in the world of having a bit of insanity in you. And he's the type of chef where you do everything right so that you don't get yelled at. I was lucky enough to work for Matt Orlando, who is by far the most inspiring chef I've ever had the chance to work for, because he's the kind of chef that you do everything right because you see he is working 10 times harder than you. And he is the leader of the kitchen. And he's in there first thing in the morning with more energy than I know how he musters, working, you know, 90 hours a week, energetic, shakes everybody's hand, hello and goodbye at the end of the night. Just, I don't know, it was incredible. And, you know, you need that when you're asking a team of 45 people from around the world to put in 90 to 100 hours a week working, you know, for no pay, just for the experience. You know, there was no shortage of people that wanted to do it, and, and we were, they were from all over the world. I say they needed. You know, I would I would have done anything for that job. It was a very special experience. It was incredibly difficult as well, but there's just something about that restaurant and those people that make it very special. I think they they would have a lot of people that would work there for free forever if they asked them to, because it's it's just a very special kind of place. Looking back on your experience at Noma, you know, there's that story. I forget what dish you're making. You're working on something. The dill story. Yeah, the dill story. Looking back on that story, if you want to tell it real quick, too, is the story better now? Or do you still wish it'd be cool to be like, yeah, Renee punched me? I still wish I had that ending to the story. But no, so the story goes, um, the Noma is, you know, broken up into sections. There's like the snacks, pastry, um, uh, two hot sections, and a section called sauce. Usually every section has a bunch of stages working in it. You know, pastry had like 10 stages and snacks had like 10. Um, sauce was the, the most advanced kind of section in the kitchen because, you know, you're breaking down whole turbo. You're making the dry-aged tartare. So really expensive products. You're, you know, they need to be sure that everything is going to be okay with, you know, and they can trust the person there. Um, I was lucky enough they chose me to do that job. And there were two chef de parties assigned to the station, Tom Halpin and Emil, forgetting his last name, both great chefs. But uh, on the menu at the time, and again, this is in the original cookbook, um, we were making these little parcels out of blanched cabbage leaves. And in the middle was a tiny rectangle, probably like an ounce and a half or two ounces of pike perch. It's like, very light flesh, freshwater fish. And inside the cabbage, um, you had lemon verbena leaves, picked dill, and dill oil. And so, you know, I was making these one day, and I had all the cabbage punched out, all lined up, ready to go, and was about to fill them. And I go to the walk-in and look where the dill normally is, and there is no dill. And I go to a meal, and I say, hey, there's no dill. What do you want me to do? said, how much dill oil do you have? I said, plenty. We made it yesterday. He goes, just put extra dill oil in it and leave the dill out. Okay. Um, you know, it's not a situation where I'm questioning what my boss tells me. The dude had worked there for almost eight years at the time. So I was like, okay, this must have happened before. I'm just going to do it. So I go over, I leave the dill out and fold them up, send them down. Everything's going fine. I get a call up that they need something downstairs in the service kitchen and I run down. And as I'm running downstairs, you have to go outside and then in another door and you run past the grill station and I see them grilling the first of the cabbage parcels. 
and one of them, the chef, grilled the cabbage too much, so it was like a little bit burned. So he had an extra one, and he cooked it with the other two. So I'm downstairs, burned parcel, and Renee comes over and looks at it, and he's like, we can't serve this one. And he opens it up, and he looks at it, sees that there's no dill inside, and screams, who fucking made these? And I see this entire thing happen, and I'm literally against the wall, and I'm just like, fuck, I have to say something. So I sheepishly put my hand up and say, I did, chef. And he rushes at me and literally pushes me against the wall and hand, his right hand behind him kind of shaking. And so you have to remember, I'm 6'1". Renee is 5'6 on a good day. So there's a serious height differential here. So it looks hilarious. His right hand is back behind him. And I'm looking at him just like, just deer in headlights. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, just please punch me. It would be so awesome if I had the story of Renee Rezzetti punching me. But right as like the tension was at its peak, a meal from over on the line says, I told him to do it. Stop. Like I told him to. It's my fault. Renee turns around and he was almost like in the exorcist. His body didn't move. His head just turns and like ran over to him. was like got very quiet and up in his face. Emil, like I said, had been there for almost eight years. He started as an apprentice when the restaurant was like brand new. Got in his face and was like very quietly, I was going to send you to Dukas. You were going to go to Japan. You're done. Like, you're not going anywhere. Like, it's over. You're at the bottom now. That was the end of that threat. And he turned back around to me and says, get out of here. So I went upstairs and no one upstairs knew what had happened. But I was just like, I was just in a fog. There was nothing going on. So the next day we get back in there and Emil and I are just silent. Like, we don't say anything. We make it through lunch service. Renee doesn't bring it up. And we go outside after a staff meal and the ritual I know at the time was you eat staff meal and then everyone runs outside to chain smoke as many cigarettes as they can on their break. And you're on the, the canal of Copenhagen and Renee is standing at the edge of the, like at the edge of the dock, right on the canal with his hand behind his back, like looking out over the canal, like a statue, like it's, looking back on it. It's almost like a joke, how picturesque it was. And Emil and I just look at each other hang our heads. We got to, we're like, all right, let's go see what he has to say. So we walk up behind him very slowly. And he says quietly, I need you both to understand that we can't cut any corners. The stakes are too high. Do you understand? And we both said, yes. And he said, good, get back to work. Never brought it up again. He sent a meal to Elaine Ducasse the next season. He went to Japan later and everything was fine. But it was, I almost had a story of being punched by the best chef in the world but I'll take it. And it was a more valuable lesson in the end too, because not only did I not leave Dill out of the parcels ever again, but it was, he was right. I mean, when you want, when you, if you're there, if you're working that hard, not even just at Noma, but when I was in Atlanta or wherever I was going next, it's like, if we're going to do it, we might as well do it right. And you're not, don't leave anything out. You know, if you need Dill, go buy Dill <laughs> or whatever it is, but don't cut any corners. And it's, you know, it's one of my favorite stories, you know, not just for the punching, but for the, the lesson that came out of it. I think it's very important for young cooks to learn that. And for me being, I was a little bit older at the time. I was almost 27 when I was dodging there. It was a, a good lesson at that point in my career to learn. One of the coolest parts in the Bourdain episode when he goes there on Parts Now Known, when he goes to Copenhagen, it's basically just with Renee and, and the Noma team throughout the entire episode. It's after they do like a dinner service. Everybody's gathered around this one part in the kitchen and there's people putting dishes forward that they created. 
and you know they basically are, are breaking down like yeah i would leave this out or you only need this part you could get rid of everything else all that stuff did you ever get to put forward a dish at all in that scenario yeah so it's called saturday night projects and a lot of i think a lot of high level restaurants do it now uh, i don't know if they were the first ones to do it but I think they really popularized it, um, being you know the number one restaurant in the world. But basically, the way it works is in any free time you find throughout the week, you can work on a dish, whatever you want to do. It can be anything. People that are on staff there, so the actual paid employees, are required to do one every month, so they have to continually work and produce things. So every week, three of the chefs that do it work there, and one stage can present. You know, you can sign up at the beginning of the week to be the stage that does it. Some people don't want to do it. Some people, you know, do multiple in their time. Uh, but I did one before I left, and it's a very intimidating experience to be on the, you know, the firing line of this. You're presenting to, you know, Renee and Matt, and you know, collectively assembled some of the best cooks you'll ever be in front of. Uh, not to mention uh, Rosio Sanchez, who was the pastry chef at the time. It just one of the most phenomenal cooks I've ever met. But yeah, so one week I decided, all right, let's do this. And we're working, we're here at Noma, we might as well. I think I had been moved to the test kitchen at the time. So I did three months in the service kitchen, three months in the test kitchen. Um, so I had a lot more free time. The schedule was not as grueling. We weren't really, we weren't working service. I decided on doing lamb belly. We had been doing it for staff meal, excess cut to have laying around, but did lamb belly with, um, I made kimchi um, out of ramps, which was the biggest hit of the dish, and served it with um, sour apples, a broth made from porcini mushrooms, and then just a variety of herbs. I don't think you can qualify as a Noma dish unless you have it completely covered in herbs. So um, that's, that was the final touch. It was, uh, I think it was uh, sorrel, something else, but I can't remember. But it was good. I mean, it went over really well. It's really cool because when you start to, prepare the dish for Saturday night service it's like your buddies that are in the kitchen will like jump in and be like what do you need what can I get for you what place do you want to use and like it's kind of it's like a little mini service again my I was in this very very much a fog state because as soon as I put the plates up and described it and everyone starts eating it it's like you're waiting for the king to speak basically you don't you don't you don't want to be wrong you don't want you don't want to be like oh this is great and then Renee is like this sucks like you don't want to be that guy to be wrong. So, you know, no one said anything. And Ray did something that he doesn't usually do. He's like, what do we think? Is it a great dish? And somebody says, I think it's a good dish. Still leaving wiggle room. You know, don't want to be too overzealous. And Renee was like, yeah, I think it's really good. If I was served this in any restaurant, I would be really happy. You know, my stress immediately alleviated because he liked it. And then Matt said, if I have one critique that there's the sweetness, even though there's sour apples, the sweetness from the apples and the fat of the lamb, kind of, they're fighting each other on the palate. So I wouldn't, you know, fat and sweet kind of act similarly. So you might want to think about that. I was like, okay. And Renee said, my only critique is that I think there's too much flavor. There was a point when you were making this that you could have stopped and I think it would have made it a better dish. She's like, I don't know exactly where that was, but could have slightly more, you could have had a little bit more of a death hand. So I got through it. I was very, very pleased. I was on cloud nine because, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Like there are very few like knockouts where they're like incredible dish. And if there are the, that situation where everyone's like, this is incredible. It's usually dessert and it usually involves ice cream. And Renee's like, this is my favorite thing in the world. This is incredible. But you know, you got the advantage of sugar. And then the next guy went and um, it was a mushroom dish. And Renee immediately goes, well, this has the opposite problem from the previous dish. It has no flavor. And I was like, all right, I'd rather be the too much flavor guy 
72 little flavor guy. So yeah, it was great. But it was like, you know, that it's very exciting because, you know, you're presenting to, you idolize these people. And then also when you're done with Saturday Night Project, the work week's over. So you got Sunday and Monday, there's a case of, you know, whatever, Carlson beer out back. And somebody went to Christiania and I was like, a couple of joints rolled up. And then you're going out to the, you know, karaoke bar and partying after that. So it's like all the tension from the week releases at Saturday Night Project. And then, you know, this ridiculous army of cooks is released onto the city of Copenhagen at that point. But yeah, Saturdays are special at Noma. But yeah, any advice to any, my advice to any stage at Noma, do a Saturday Night Project. Did you ever serve that dish on the menu after that anywhere? I don't think I did. Um, I did a similar lamb belly preparation and I've definitely made ramp kimchi since, but I don't think I did that dish. I don't think it actually ever occurred to me, oddly enough, for some reason. I've done lamb and ramp kimchi before, but I left the other components off, I guess, trying to take Renee's advice as best as I could. So from there, you know, you do the stage at the test kitchen, which was like another three months. What was like the weirdest thing in the test kitchen when you were there that you're like, I can't believe they're doing this? We were trying to make a broth out of sea snails. It smelled like mud the entire time. I don't know if they eventually got it, but it was like this dark gray, brown, green sludge in a pot. And it was just not good. The snails themselves were good, but they threw all the leftover shells in the pot and just boiled them for a day. And it was terrible. That was probably one of the weirder things. Being the stage in the test kitchen was an interesting experience because, you know, we would steal product from the line to work on um, and like come up with dishes. And the stage was the one sent down to take product from the line cooks. And that was not fun. That was not fun. My first day, I had to go down to get, uh, they make their own miso there. We call it, they call it piso because it's made from Danish peas. And the first day I go down to get like a little, they call them yogurt um, cups, uh, full of it. And Matt Orlando sees him to walk into it. And he's just like, ah, oh, first day already stealing all of our prep, huh? I'm like, God damn it. Go talk to the head of R&D. He told me to come down here. What are you, <laughs> like, what are you giving me shit for? Uh, but it was just, it was just tradition, I guess. But no, so like it was, the test kitchen was awesome because there's you know, the old test kitchen was in the staff area, but it was like kind of a step up, this state of the art kitchen, you know, and this giant clear dry erase board with all these ideas written on them. You'd think that it, a lot of experimentation on specific products and stuff, it was very much tailored around the idea of complete dish development. So you're not working on an ingredient specifically. Everything's pretty far conceptualized and you're working on like, like, for example, we were working on a dessert with green strawberries, grilled green strawberries, honey and cream, play on strawberries and cream, basically. And we were doing all these different variations because we were grilling the strawberries in like foil. All right. Do we, we tried it with lemon verbena in the packages. We tried it with the honey in versus with the honey not in. So grilled or not grilled honey. We tried flavoring the whipped cream with all these different things. And it's like you do 25 different versions of this conceptualized dish. That dish was specifically special to me because there was one day when we were tasting it and we thought it was me, it was Lars, who was the new head of R&D, and Rosia, who was the pastry chef. And she spent a lot of her time in the test kitchen. And we were working on that strawberry dish and we tasted it. And I was like, you know, we're like, what whipped cream should we use? And I was like, I think we should use 
the unflavored, like literally just whipped cream, you know, just a touch of salt, no sugar, because I think it lets you taste the green strawberries most like themselves. Like it, it complements it, but you're tasting the green strawberry. Kind of cuts that sourness and you just get the strawberry. And they agreed and Renee came in to taste it. Lars was explaining the dish and he basically quoted what I had said. He was like, we think the unflavored whipped cream lets, lends itself most to the strawberry. I was very proud of that because he said that, what I had said, but Renee looks up and he's like, I don't think it's going to work, scrap it, and <laughs> threw the dish away. And it's like, but that's how it goes. It's like you work for a couple weeks on something and Renee will come in and taste it and be like, either I'm tired of the idea, we can't elevate it to the point we want to, or it's just not working, let's invest our time in something more fruitful. That could be very difficult. I think Renee was better tuned to just moving on to the next thing because he's got so much going on. But for me, it was hard to let go. Uh, but I think Rosio and Lars were just like, kind of shrugged their shoulders like, all right, fuck it. <laughs> so move on. So then after your time at Noma, you come back to the U.S. Matt Orlando kind of hooks you up with a stage at Per Se, which was probably, I would say at the time, only more desirable restaurant for you to work at probably would have been the French Laundry based on how influential Thomas College cookbook and everything was for you, you know, before you kind of got into the profession. And then, then once you did too, not the best experience though. No, it was terrible. Sorry, the beginning, it was basically like Mount Everest. I mean, it was like, you're looking at, you know, I had idealized this, you know, chef and, you know, company. And like, I went to New York before the stage. I, I took Matt Orlando's advice because I was considering a couple different things. The nice thing about staging at Noma is it kind of opens up your, the possibilities of your career. You can kind of do whatever you want. So I was talking to, um, you know, the people down at um, basically in Sean Brock's camp about coming to work down there at McCready's or going to New York again. And Matt said, look, let's be honest about it. You're 27. If you don't try New York again now, you never will. And I agreed with him and said, all right. And after, you know, the first go, which wasn't the best experience, I was like, let's, I'm older, I'm more mature. Let's give this a go again. So I went to New York. To say that per se or the French Laundry is like Mecca in my mind at that point is not overstating it. Like I, I went to the Time Warner Center the day that I got there with all of my luggage, went up the third floor and just stared at the blue door of per se, like the front door. They have a replica of the blue door at French Laundry next to the actual door per se. And it was just like, it was like being on hollowed ground. And then, you know, I did a two-day stage where first day was just being in the kitchen. And then the second day, I cooked two dishes for the chef de cuisine, basically. And he tasted them. First one was a complete bust. But the second one, uh, he was like, we could put this on the menu right now and no one would know the difference. I was like, okay, that hopefully that gets me a job. And he offered me a job. At the time, Noma was, you know, the biggest thing in the world. You know, the only thing it didn't have was three Michelin stars, but it had been number one restaurant three years in a row. But it was the antithesis of what everything that the French Laundry and Per Se espoused and believed. Like it was, it was the anti-French food. It was like, let's see how simple we can get things. There's technique, but it's more about you know, the product and the flavor and like how much you can do with 80 people and just force of will per se is let's get an army. We're following strict French technique and we're going to see how refined we can make this. 
All that to say, the cooks at Per Se hate Noma, or at the time did. Like, they gave me constant shit about Noma. They were like, oh, what, you like that dish of just some chopped up beef wrapped in a sorrel leaf? Like, literally, like, it's like they thought that it was just like, it was bullshit. Like, they thought it was like, it was just a fad, and it was going to go away, and French traditional classic preparations that stood the test of time, and it's just this new thing. And I think I bore the brunt of that. But no, so I started off in the Comey kitchen there, you know, basically prep kitchen. It was brutal. Like it's, you go in, I, my, I started my day at 4.30. I was still smoking at the time. So I'd stand outside of the Time Warner Center, smoke as many cigarettes as I could before I absolutely had to go up, change out, get into the Comey kitchen, absolutely empty kitchen. And, you know, you start your work um, and you finish at around 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So, you know, you're talking 16, 17, 18 hour days. And it was just, you were brutalized, especially the lower levels of the kitchen. You know, there were more times than I could count that they changed the water in my water bottle out for vinegar. Like just prank asshole shit. I understand like everything has to be absolutely perfect. Like it's a three mission star restaurant. People are paying a thousand dollars per person for their meal. It was extremely difficult. And, but I, you know, I count it as, I think it's like getting a culinary doctorate. Like, cause I would, one of my favorite things that I learned there was like rolling on Yaloti. Like I did all the pasta work for a significant amount of time. And it was very difficult because you would, you basically make the 400 on Yaloti that you needed for the day. A sous chef would come in to check it and then pick out individual ones and throw them away because they aren't good enough. And then you got to make 200 more. You know, it's just like, constant and then if you don't have that done within 20 minutes you got two sous chefs riding your ass like what's taking so long we got all this other stuff to do you know i'm sure i had a relatively singular experience i'm sure everyone doesn't have that experience there but coming from noma you know and like that sense of camaraderie and teamwork and all that that i felt so profoundly there not feeling so profoundly in the opposite direction of per se it was the day-to-day struggle of it was very real. Like I said, I, I don't really blame the restaurant per se. My experience is rather singular, but it is uh, without question a very difficult place to work. I lasted as long as I could before I cracked, but there was a day I just, I mean, it was, it was getting to the point of like, it's either I stop going there or I have a complete mental breakdown because it was, I was falling out of love with cooking one and I, I wasn't doing well. Like I was not succeeding in the kitchen. Like I, I really wish that I had been able to go in, kick ass, two years, I'm sous chef, sweet. Now, like I'm a badass in New York. That is unfortunately not the story I have to tell of it. I crashed and burned pretty hard. I, you know, ended up just, I didn't go back. I was like, I can't, we left for holiday break. I was like, I can't. I'm not, I'm not coming back. I recognized that I was not going to succeed there. That hit me really hard. Like it was, I thought I had just completely failed, didn't succeed at, you know, a restaurant that I had idolized my entire life. Like when I called my dad, when I got the job, he cried, we cried. It was like, I would made it, you know, I, I fell flat on my face. The only thing that kind of, you know, was any saving grace was, and the reason I felt okay with it was because I read Grant Atkins' book, and um, in the first chapter or two, he talks about when he worked at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago, and he was like a brand new cook, and he had a very similar experience. He was like, you know, he's like, if I don't finish this year, I'm going to be blackballed. No one will give me a job anymore. Like, I, I'll be a failure. 
And he, I forget who gave me the advice, but he's like, they were like, look, if you're not happy, just go somewhere else. You'll find another kitchen to work at. And that's what he did. And, you know, obviously not saying that I'm any type of Grand Ackets, but I also was okay after that. Um, but it was very difficult to get over because I was writing this, the book in my head as I went of like the David Chang, Grand Ackets, Thomas Keller, where it's like everything that you do every step of the way is, this like you're successful, you're the best cook in the kitchen, you you know, you become sous chef over all the other guys that wanted the job. And up until that point things have been going well, but I just ran face first into a brick wall. And it was definitely the hardest point in my career. And, you know, there were points where I was like, okay, what can I do outside of food? It was like, what do I like to do? Because I was like, if I, I, I don't know if I can recover from this. So yeah, to say I didn't have a good experience there, I think is you know, slightly understating it. There were some pretty tough moments. I have heard from firsthand sources, guys that I cooked with a long time ago at other restaurants that have worked there since that they have since made significant changes. Not sure how much that Pete Wills, Pete Wells New York Times article had to do with it, but I've heard the kitchen culture has changed dramatically. At the time, it was, it was very difficult. It's kind of weird too, because didn't Renee work at the French Laundry? I think he stars for a short amount of time. It's a little weird that like, you know, let's dump all over Noma. And maybe it's because you're at that level where you're competing for, you know, top five restaurant in the world, best restaurant in the world kind of title. And it's like, well, nobody else is good as us. Everybody else sucks. It's still a little weird that it's like he's kind of an alumni of kind of the Thomas Keller, you know, kitchen. And it's like, no, no, no let's let's shit all over him kind of thing. It was super weird. I mean, there was, I remember there was one day, I did, like, in a lot of ways, I just don't think they got it. And if you don't go, which is an easy mistake or easy, you know, preconception to have, because it is so different, like what they're doing at Noma. And if you're just looking at it and, you know, you're seeing pictures and like, it's difficult to understand unless you're there. And, you know, that there was one day in the, the butcher room at Per Se, where it was me, a couple chefs de parties, and David Breeden, who was the executive sous chef at the time, and he's now the executive chef at the French Laundry. Great guy. Him and only one other like sous chef there were like literally the only two people that were nice to me the entire time. But um, we were there and we were talking about it. He was like, I just don't get it. Like, there's a restaurant here in New York that's doing Scandinavian food. And he was like, how the fuck do you do Scandinavian food in New York? I don't get it. And I was like, well, it's not about the ingredients. It's the food philosophy. Like, it's the same way you guys cook French food in New York. It's just the ideas behind, you know, how you use the products, which products you use, and all that. And I think I, you know, got that through to him. But, you know, the line cooks there were just scoffing. And it's, you know, I think it's a very similar reason why Michelin, you know, waited 15 years to give them their third star. Like, they're so antithetical to the French aesthetic and understanding of what fine dining and high cuisine is, that if you are so immersed in the, you know, the cuisine of Escoffier and LaRousse, you know, translated through Keller, it's really tough to understand what you're looking at when you're seeing a piece of fish wrapped in cabbage and just grilled. Like it's, there's so much more to it than that. But when you're just looking at the plate, it's like, all right, it's just, you know, fish and cabbage with not even the herbs, the stem of parsley. Like he's using the fucking stem. What the, like, so it's just so antithetical. 
And, you know, Rene, I don't know, I, I think he was a stage at French Laundry, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, he was there. I don't think he was, he was, a, you know, he may have influenced Rene, but I don't think he was impactful at the French Laundry. You know, it's just, he was there to learn and see what was going on. And, you know, I think he might've been there when Grant was still there, but it's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I think in the, I think I was at Noma at a very special time too, because, you know, when I was there, Trevor Moran, who was a sous chef at the time, who is now a chef in Nashville, he was a chef at Catbird Seat for a while. You know, we got to talking and he was like, you know, much later when I was telling you about like percent and everything, he was like, when I first started working, working with Renee, that's exactly what it was like. Like we were in the trenches in this like just, you know, hot atmosphere, tempers flaring and like, you know, you're coming into this when at the top of the world, like, you know, number one restaurant in the world, three years running. Like there was one day when there were 10,000 people on the wait list for a reservation, like things couldn't be going better. And like, you're at this like top, like super successful moment. And, you know, per se has always been like from the day they opened, they've been the most successful, like highest ticket restaurant in New York. Like it's still to this day, like, you know, and that lends itself to the French Laundry. But with that comes this, it's not even ego. It's just, you know, they know if I'm not there, like as a cook, if I don't want to be there, their attitude is fine. Don't be here. There's a hundred people lined up at the door waiting to come in behind you. So what do we care if you like, if you don't want to come in, like you're a lowly Comey, like you're a line, like you're a prep cook. We don't care. Other people may have had different situations. It was the hardest kitchen I've ever worked in. And I think if I hadn't have left at the time, I, you know, I'm not sure I'd still be a cook. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I'd still be in the industry. But yeah, like you said, it's very odd um, that Renee, having been in the French Laundry, that Noma ended up being something so different. Uh, but I think that took years of maturing for Renee to get to that point because I mean, when he opened Noma, if I'm not mistaken, he was in his early mid twenties. Like it's just like he was very young, and it takes time to kind of grow up and get your feet under you. But yeah, I mean, I I'm thankful for my time at Per Se from the technical aspect where I learned a lot. Um, but I um, I'm glad to have been done of it when I was. With kind of the change in kitchen atmosphere and everything, do you think if you went to Per Se? three, four, five years later than you did, it would have been a completely different experience for you? Yeah, I do. So in addition to it being per se and the difficulty of the kitchen culture, like I said before, I don't do New York well. Like I, I don't know how to live in that city. I lived like four blocks in the restaurant and still was just terrible at it. But yeah, I mean, I think if I had had some separation from what Noma was, and my just impossibly stacked expectations for what per se was going to be. Like, like, like we talked about, like I've idolized this stuff since before I was a professional cook. Like since I was in high school, I've been reading that cookbook. So I was expecting it to be something that I don't think even if it's in its best case scenario, it could have lived up to. But I think, you know, I was at a point in my life where, you know, I had been in Europe again for six months and coming home back to New York, you know, I just, there wasn't any stability. I don't think I was mentally set up at the time for that position and to deal with the really intense amount of stress 
of working at Per Se, it was like basically working at Noma was like a marathon. And then it was like I woke up the next day and decided to run a marathon again by, by going to Per Se. And it was just, I didn't give myself any break. I just wasn't mentally up for it. And yeah, I think a little break would have helped. But, you know, I think three, four, five years, um, I think Per Se is just a totally different kitchen at that point. Um, I think they maybe came along with the times and uh, it might be an easier place to work. I don't know that for a fact. I know it is now because I know I have a buddy that's, you know, in the kitchen there and a buddy that's in the kitchen of the French Laundry. But, um, you know, it's just that's just how kitchens were, especially high level Michelin starred kitchens. I mean, they're still very difficult places to work. You have to commit your entire life to them. And I was happy to do that. But I think, you know, I had been cooking for almost nine, 10 years at that point, working 16 to 18 hours every day. I think had I gone to work at any restaurant with two or three Michelin stars, I probably would have had a similar experience, not because of the work environment, but because of where I was at mentally with my headspace. It was just, I needed, I needed a break and I wasn't aware enough to give myself that break. So you wind up back in Atlanta. Nobody ever followed up with you, right? When you didn't show back up to per se? Pretty much. I think I got some type of email from HR. There weren't texts or anything. It wasn't like, where are you? There was nothing like that. I think it was, if not expected, unsurprising. But yeah, so I, you know, at the end there in New York, I had talked to Hugh again a couple of times and I asked him, what should I do? And I called him specifically for advice because I knew he had been sous chef at a restaurant in San Francisco called Gary Danko way back in the day. He had been opening sous chef for that restaurant. And he told me that he had had a similar experience because like Gary Danko wanted him to be the enforcer sous chef, like this guy that like it would be his job to make his line fix cry. And I think he, he wasn't there for a very long time. He didn't want to do that. So I asked him, I was like, all right, man, like, I'm having a similar experience just on the other end of it. What should I do? And said, last as long as you can learn as much as you can. But if you just, if you can't do it, we'll find a place for you down here. Like we, you can always come home. And I said, okay. And uh, I called him again a couple of weeks later and told him like, I think I'm done. And he said, okay, um, well, in the next couple of months, I'm looking for a head chef for five and 10 this flagship restaurant actually in Athens is like, do you want to do that? And I said, give me a day. And I think the moment I hung up the phone, I knew I was going to take that job because I, the sense of relief that I felt at the, at just the idea of not being in New York, not having to go into per se, uh, you know, was so overwhelming that I was just like, okay, I could have immediately called him back and told him I was taking it. I called him back. I was like, yes, I'll do it. And we figured out a timeline. I've said this before, but I, I think it's very true. I owe Hugh the second half of my career. Like it's it, the most difficult transition to make is from, you know, line cook to chef to executive chef. It's almost impossible to get somebody to trust you in that capacity unless you figure out a way to open your own restaurant. But I mean, I was at my lowest point in my career ever and Hugh threw me a lifeline. So it was, you know, I yeah, moved back down to Atlanta and then a couple months later, moved to Athens and took over at 5 and 10. Yeah, you're there for a while. You worked a little bit, I think, at Empire State South again to get speed with how the restaurant group operated, all that stuff. And then eventually, you wind up moving to Nashville from there. 
How did you wind up at the Treehouse? Did they reach out to you? Did you apply to go there? Like you thought Nashville might be an interesting experience? How'd that all take place? So I went to college in Athens, and it's a very small town. I was at five and ten for two years. It was a very frustrating two years. Not, I mean, the restaurant was great. I got to do pretty much whatever I wanted to do. It wasn't getting received how I was expecting it to. Um, so I was a little frustrated. And then I found Treehouse because I'm addicted to going on Eater and seeing what's going on in literally every city in the country. But I was looking at Nashville and the Treehouse, like their chef had announced he was leaving. And I looked at it and, it's, you know, in East Nashville, cool neighborhood, 40 seat restaurant, it's tiny, you know, and I sent the owners of my resume. I was like, hey, if you guys are looking for a chef, you know, I'd be interested. Uh, they drove to Athens the next day to interview me, to talk to me. Um, and a week later, I was in Nashville doing a tasting and they offered a job to me. You know, I think a lot of people ask me the question, why don't you just go back to Atlanta? Atlanta at the time was so hypersaturated with restaurants and with there wasn't there wasn't really anywhere to go in Atlanta. There wasn't any position that was interesting to me. So Nashville is a cool town. I had been friends with uh, Sean Brock for a little while. I knew Trevor was there. So I knew it would be an interesting city. And I knew I could, I knew my going there would be significant in the national food scene. And it did end up being that. So I had an audience pretty, pretty quickly. You know, the guys at the Treehouse, the two owners of it were front of house guys. One's in the music business and the other one's a front of house guy. And, you know, I did a tasting and cooked for them. And they were like, you can do whatever you want. We do not care. Just help us make money. I was like, okay. So, you know, I completely rewrote the menu. You know, I, I went in the first day with a crew that I didn't hire. Week before we reopened, I was in the kitchen every day prepping literally everything. And then they showed up and I was like, all right, all of your stations are prepped. Let's go over the dishes. Let's go over how to prep them. Go over how to pick them up. And we were off and running. And it was great. Um, you know, I loved running that restaurant. It's the longest I ran a restaurant, longest I've been anywhere. It's three and a half years. Um, at certain points, because the owners wanted it to be more of a bar so that they could, you know, they wanted the alcohol food split to be 50-50. And, you know, it just wasn't. We were selling more food than anything. Um, and at the end, they ended up selling the restaurant um, to somebody else. And when that was going on, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall that I just needed to go do something else because I knew the new ownership was not going to be, you know, super amenable with the Jason does whatever he wants philosophy that the previous ownership had. Um, so, you know, look, I mean, I, but I owe that restaurant a lot because got me in the national food scene. You know, we had a bunch of write-ups and lots of like regional stuff. And, you know, I was on Food Network for a show or whatever, late night eats. And it was great. But it was definitely the stepping stone for what eventually became Stetson, which gave me complete control basically over every aspect of the restaurant. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to argue with anybody. But Stetson in and of itself was, I mean, still to this day, the most difficult thing I've done in my career. And, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, three else is great, but it was, uh, when it was over, it was necessary. Yeah, I mean, you were also, I think one of the things that you left out might have been the most important accolade that you were chef of the year for Nashville 2016. Well, just a long time ago. Yeah, no, but that was cool. because, And I thought uh, Matt Rogers was the editor of Eater Nashville at the time. He said something really nice, which was, I don't think anyone could think of any chef that's had a bigger impact on his restaurant or you know the Nashville dining scene than 
chasing the big bombs. Um, and it was a, it was a very nice line. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really cool. We, you know, he was a big fan of the restaurants. I knew we were doing something right at that point, you know, gave me a great amount of confidence a couple of years later when I was working on opening my own space and actually successfully did it. I like to say that I'm the most experienced person at failing to open a restaurant ever. Uh, just the number of business plans I've written and everything, but you know, eventually set Sun came to fruition. Basically, I mean, started as a pop up because I had no other options. Like I, I think it, in this day and age, it's very hard to open a chef-owned and operated restaurant. Like I think it's it's almost impossible at this point based on financial constraints and everything. Unless you're part of a bigger food group or restaurant group, I took out a small but big for me twenty thousand dollar loan to get equipment and food and wine. And we took over in its original incarnation, we took over a place called Sky Blue Cafe, which is where the name Set Sun comes from, actually. I always thought Sky Blue's name was flipped. It should be Blue Sky. So I just took Sunset and flipped that to Set Sun. But we were doing service out of that kitchen, but we couldn't prep there during the day because they were breakfast and lunch. So I talked to my friends at a bar a couple miles down the road and we prepped in the bar kitchen because they didn't have a food program, packed up all of our food, wine, pots, pans, plates, glassware, everything, and transported it to the restaurant to do service every night. But yeah, it was uh, a bit of insanity because it was me, one cook, three front of house people. I did cooking, all the prepping, service. I did all the human resources, all the PR, all the uh, social media work, literally everything. So it was crazy. But, you know, we started to get some real traction. I mean, we we got best tasting menu in Nashville, which was kind of an accident because I put a bit of everything option on my menu, which was like, you can just do a, you know, smaller size of everything. It's portion for two people. And overnight, we became a tasting menu restaurant. We got written up in Bon Appetit. And then later, John Kessler, who's always been a big fan of mine, but he was a food writer at AJC. He put us in Garden and Guns, you know, basically five best restaurants of the year or whatever. So we we're starting to get traction. And it was very exciting because uh, it was like, all right, everything I've wanted to do in my career, have my own restaurant, get some traction, you know, get some national attention. This has been the goal. And we moved into, you know, our brick and mortar, um, that ho- the Hotel Van Dyke in Nashville, which is where you ate. Um, and we did one night of service and the first night of service, we did probably 250 covers. Again, just me and one cook in the kitchen. In addition to the whole menu, we shucked about 500 oysters that night and we got our asses kicked, like just completely kicked. We finished service, we packed up, we went home and 30 minutes after I got home, an F4 tornado ripped through Nashville and destroyed the intersection of East Nashville, where we were doing dinner service. And then two weeks later, we were in COVID lockdown. As alluded to in the beginning of this recording, uh, timing could have been better on my part. (laughs) Yeah, it was was not good. I mean, it was brutal, man. It's just so, it was so hard. And now there's enough distance from it, but I was like, I was super, I mean, we tried to reopen, but it just, it wasn't, the numbers weren't there, the people weren't coming out. And I eventually just decided to close it. And it was the hardest thing I've had to do because, like you said, it's nasty. It's God, it's uncontrollable. Like there's nothing to be done about it. But it was, I did the thing I'd been trying to do my entire career. Like I opened a restaurant. We had, you know, we were in a bigger new space. 
Things were going great. And it was just, all right, it's all gone now. And, you know, I'm okay with it now, but there was a, a long time where I was uh, not okay with it. Was it just too far behind kind of the eight ball because of the COVID lockdown and everything? And then you're just trying to play catch up and get back to like that break even point. And it was just, you start looking at numbers and it's like, there's just no way. Yes. All of that. Like I said, we were in the middle of five points in, in East Nashville. And when the tornado hit, it was a war zone. Like buildings completely caved in. 120 year old houses were destroyed. The lights and power poles power lines at that intersection had fallen down like it was it was a war zone and there was no like traffic was closed in that area for weeks and that the stigma of thinking that east nashville five points was essentially destroyed and that everything was closed didn't wear off we would post stuff or like i remember on like east nashville like some facebook group or whatever somebody posted like hey i see other cities are like on like Friday and Saturday nights, closing streets in some areas and allowing outdoor dining on like on streets. And I was like, oh, that's cool that people are talking about that in Nashville. And somebody commented, is like, there aren't even businesses open in East Nashville. Everything's destroyed down there. What are you talking about? And it's just like, our restaurant was open. Every business was open, but it was just like, people just thought it wasn't there. So no one was coming from downtown or West Nashville. And the only people we were really getting were East Nashville locals. And they were great, but it's just not enough to sustain everybody that was there. I refused for a long time to sacrifice control and vision for success of a restaurant that I opened. So I wasn't gonna wasn't gonna take on a partners for additional capital to relinquish control and all of that. So the only option was we lasted as long as we could. And we reopened, it was like, all right, let's be open literally all day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Let's see when people are coming out, let's see what works. Immediately realized no one's going to offices, so breakfast is out. There's no one going to offices, so no one's going out to lunch, so lunch is out. So we just went back to dinner. And then, you know, it was just nothing worked. And it was just like, so not only were we trying to play catch up, but we only days we had business were Friday and Saturday. We were only doing like a turn a night. And it was just, it was like pounding my head against a wall. And it was very frustrating because we had, you know, kept everybody on staff that had been at the original location. You know, I got a small emergency relief loan to keep paying people. So we had waited through until we could reopen. But at a certain point, it was like, okay, I can stop now, pay back everything I owe, just be free and clear. Or we can keep doing this. I'll eventually run it into the ground, have no money and owe a ridiculous amount of money on top of it. So it was a difficult decision, but I really wasn't left with much choice. During COVID, you were doing, I think, bagels and salsa, kind of like grab and go, you know, stuff like that, order through Instagram and everything. Once that sun closes, you start doing salsa again. Well, you moved to Dallas, got engaged. Yep. Now happily married. What else is on, you know, the horizon? Obviously, I think that you're still doing the salsa. I got a shout out from, I think, Burt Kreischer, who's, you know, comedian with a big following. What's next for you? Are you going to, you know, open another restaurant? Or are you just going to keep going with kind of the, the salsa thing until things kind of calm down with COVID? Where are you at? I'm in a very fortunate position. I have a lovely, beautiful, wildly intelligent, very successful wife that um, I'm very lucky. I'm not under a ton of pressure to, you know, take the first job that has been offered or, you know, the many jobs that have been. I've been able to kind of sit back and 
wait for the right thing. I've interviewed for a bunch of stuff here in Dallas. Nothing has really seemed perfectly right. Black Cactus, the sauce company, chugging along. You know, it's nothing. It's not enough to, you know, be a full-time job or income. But, you know, we probably send out five packages a day, which is nice. People enjoy it. Um, and that's fun. About a week ago, um, this is the first place I'm actually saying it, I accepted a head chef position at a restaurant here in Dallas. Um, it's called Sassetta. Um, It was in the design district. Um, their old space actually is where Carbone from New York is moving into down here. Um, and they are moving into the Jewel Hotel um, in downtown Dallas. And they're doing an Italian restaurant, pizza, pasta, small plate type stuff. And they're moving into the Jewel Hotel, which the owner of the restaurant group, he actually owns the hotel. And they're doing a complete revamp, kind of elevating it to be flagship restaurant of the restaurant group. Um, so they've gutted the old space. It was a restaurant called Americano. They have a really well-known designer doing the interior design work for it. The construction has been delayed a little bit, um, as with all supply chain things happening. I'm very excited about it. Um, I, you know, had several opportunities that weren't right. These guys are super supportive and super into what, you know, I bring to the table and, you know, have been willing to, my only request when I, you know, work for somebody is I want significant creative control on things. There are, you know, it was a restaurant that existed before. And so there are some things that they want on the menu. And, you know, a younger Jason would have said, fuck that. I want to do everything I want to do and blah, 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 blah. But I'm 36 now and they seem like very good people and they're going to let me do, you know, 90% of what I want to do. And it gets me back in the kitchen, you know, and I, I'm very thankful for that. And it's, it's going to be a little bit different because, you know, Treehouse and Set Sun has been very much roughing it. You know, I've been tiny kitchens doing everything myself. This is a there's a nice, healthy budget for the project. I will have a full team. I won't be running the bar, the wine. I will be the general manager, too. So I'm really excited. You know, we hopefully will be open um, sometime early next year, probably after the podcast comes out. But, yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's my next step. And it's, uh, it's been a long time coming, but super excited. Well, you've been in Dallas for probably a year, a year and a half. How different is the food scene in Dallas compared to Nashville, Atlanta? Oh, wildly different. Dallas is a very interesting city. And I say this all the time, I think Dallas, because Houston and Austin are like, everyone thinks of it as like great food towns and like cool cities. I think Dallas gets a particularly bad rap. Uh, but I think I mean, Dallas is an awesome town. We've loved living here. But the food scene here is, it's different. Nashville, it's like, Stetson was there. You got like, Rolf and Daughters, Folk, there's like this new American, like kind of, you know, restaurants like you would get in New York, like Contra, Wild Air, like small plate, very focused type stuff, natural wine bars and everything. Here, it is definitely a more, the scene is kind of designed around consistency over the long term. So it's like people want to go to a restaurant and get the same thing that they've had you know, every time they've gone there, which again, for younger Jason would have been like, this is ridiculous. There's nothing fun about this bullshit. But um, now it's like, look, we go to this place called Hudson House and they make a fantastic cheeseburger and they have $7 martinis and they're fantastic martinis. And it's just, 
the quality of product here is fantastic. It's not as boundary pushing and it doesn't intend to be, and it's not trying to be that in the same way Atlanta restaurants or natural restaurants are. Everybody is very comfortable in what kind of the scene and the business dictates, but everyone is doing a very good version of those things. And one thing I will say about um, down here, um, as opposed to Nashville and Atlanta, nothing that there's not good service in those cities, but the service in Dallas tends to be, on the whole, pretty flawless. Like, it is very service-driven. There are very few examples of restaurants where I've had bad experiences. It's based on very different things. Um, you know, the dining clientele here, average age is probably 15 years higher than Nashville or Atlanta. So the focus is just very different. And, you know, it's an older conservative town. So the focus is different, but the food is no less good. Um, we have, oh, and opposed to Nashville and Atlanta, not Atlanta so much, but probably the best Chinese food I've had outside of New York City, Chinatown just a few miles north in Richardson. So it's different, but um, still very, very good. So you still do the salsa stuff on the side? Yeah, I think with COVID, a lot of people came up with ideas and stuff that they could kind of at least kind of float them or float some people with their business, different stuff that they could do. And one of the big things was like moving into the CPG space, consumer packaged goods, hot sauces, salsas like you're doing, spice mixes, a whole bunch of stuff. So will you still kind of like run that on the side? Because that seems to become a more commonplace. Yeah, no, that will never go away. I mean, the licensing and all of that stuff is already done. You know, the LLC is formed and everything. Like all the business stuff is done. So it would be silly to give it up. And the the volume that we do more than covers all that. And as a, you know, a nice supplemental income on the side, you know, like I said, um, with getting back in a kitchen, you know, it's obviously been very difficult on the industry. But I think for the people that are now weathering it and coming out the other side, I have a much larger um, appreciation for our business and kitchen culture in general. But I think this situation, you know, COVID has kind of forced everyone in our industry to mature in a way that wasn't necessary previously, where like I was just, the reasons I was in this business was like, I wanted a James Beard Award. I wanted, you know, write-ups. I wanted, I wanted clout within the industry. I wanted my fellow chefs to think that I'm really good at what I do. I, I mean, I still want all those things. But I think that there is something more important, and that is the existence of, you know, the wider American food culture, which is in very great peril because the cost of running a restaurant, you know, the difficulty of becoming a chef, um, you know, staffing issues, supply chain issues, inflation, uh, it's just becoming much more difficult. So being able to get back in a kitchen, create a kitchen environment and, you know, where it's very positive and everyone's there because they want to learn and they want to cook good food for no other reason than doing that in and of itself. Yeah, it's very exciting to me. Keeping all of this going is really important. I've been very lucky to work in some great restaurants. And like I said, you have to be pretty privileged and in a really good position to go work at somewhere like Noma or go work in Spain for a while. You know, I feel it has been and is my responsibility because I've been to those places to teach the next generation or even my current generation that works for me that will never have those opportunities to go to those places. And there's been, 
you know, I've been very lucky through COVID. I've been very, you know, content and happy with my wife and my wife and everything. I love what I do professionally and I've been missing it a lot. Getting back into a kitchen and, you know, writing prospective menus, recipe development and talking things out, stuff that I previously would have thought of as like secondary to like, you know, being in the kitchen, the adrenaline rush of service, even these like small, like, all right, well, how much does a pound of flour cost right now? Okay, well, how much does that get into a portion? What is that going to cost us? It's all, it just feels familiar and it's making me really happy right now. You never went to culinary school. So do you have any regrets about not going to culinary school? And what would you say to somebody in your kitchen just started and they're like, hey, I really want to do this as a profession. I'm serious about this. Should I go to culinary school or should I do kind of what you did and bounce around to different kitchens and get as much hands-on experience as I can? Two, two thoughts. Um, one, economically, I think culinary school is, unless you're fortunate enough to come from a well-to-do family, I think culinary school is a kind of ridiculous institution because you pay however many tens of thousands of dollars. I think if you go to CIA, I don't know what the two-year program is, but it's a lot of money. Um, and you get out and you are lucky to make 15 bucks an hour. You know, you know, if you're in a big city, you might be making 18, but you still got to pay to live. But just on the pure economic side, I think it's crazy to go to culinary school when you can learn on the job while getting paid. That being said, you know, culinary school is a really good and useful tool for, you know, getting a lot of exposure to a lot of different things very quickly. But what it doesn't do is teach you how to exist and live as a cook in a professional kitchen. There's no, you know, there's no like, there's no class on how to mentally handle going to work at two o'clock and getting off at midnight and then like how to build healthy habits around that. I've done everything you can possibly do, you know, drank too much, some of the drugs and stuff because I'm, you know, because in that environment. And, you know, I think if culinary school would teach that aspect of it, like what culinary life is or like cook's life is really like and how to, you know, go into that with a healthy mindset, not just be about cooking. I think culinary school would be very helpful. No, I mean, I think I, honestly, just go work in a kitchen and if you like it, great. But if you don't, then you're not down 60 grand and you think you have to keep going because you spent all this money already. Learn on the job while you're getting paid, set goals, you know, try not to plateau too much. If you, you know, you think you've been somewhere long enough and you've learned everything that the chef has to teach you, go find another job and work for somebody else. I mean, I, if you look at my resume, I didn't, I never stayed anywhere much longer than a year because you want to learn and grow and develop as a cook. But no, I mean, I think if you, if it's not going to be a tremendous financial burden on you and you want to get a good solid base of exposure towards baking, pastry, and all the various world cuisines, sure, go to culinary school. If you want to learn how to be an actual, you know, a cook, go get a job. So this question comes from Chef Stefan Medias of Mario's Beef and Pork here in Columbus. He was a previous guest on the podcast. He left behind a question. In your opinion, is a hot dog a sandwich? No, no, I don't. Um, I just don't think sausage on a roll constitutes a sandwich. I think that, I'll say this, if you can take what's in the center or middle of the sandwich out and it still constitutes a completed dish, then it's not a sandwich. And I also mean that, that means chicken parm sandwiches are not actually sandwiches. And I'll stand by that. <laughs> That's my lackluster reasoning 
for some reason, calling a hot dog a sandwich just doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's his own thing. But I think, you know, but I don't, I don't have a good reason why. But I, yeah, I think, but I, I don't think like, but like, uh, you know, sausage and peppers and onions on a roll in the same way is not a sandwich. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. Cake or pie? And the only right answer is pie. So. I would agree with that, actually, out of those two. So a handful more questions. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So there's a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? Thomas Keller for the good and the bad of it. He got me in the industry through the cookbook and um, changed my entire perspective on it through his restaurant when I worked there. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Mini offset spatula. One thing in the restaurant that you would not fix yourself? Grease trap. I'd rather the business go out of business than clean a grease trap. <laughs> restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? So the scenario I usually give is, you know, somebody gets stuck at the airport, stuck at the Dallas airport there overnight, reach out to you, your restaurant's closed, say, hey, where should we go eat? You say. I'm going to... I think this restaurant is criminally underrated and the chef should be nationally lauded. The restaurant in Atlanta, it's called Boca Lupa and the chef's name is Bruce Logue. And it is without question the best Italian restaurant in Atlanta. It's one of my favorite restaurants anywhere. He worked for Batali a long time ago, I think in New York, Ababo, but he is an incredible chef and it is an incredible restaurant. And I don't know if he still does it, but for like the first seven or eight years of his restaurant, he cooked every plate of pasta that came out of that restaurant. And I asked him, why don't you open a sixth day? He says, because if I was open that sixth day, I would never get a day off. He is incredible at what he does. And everyone that travels through Atlanta should go to that restaurant. Give me a restaurant for Nashville and then give me one for Dallas, now that you live in Dallas. Uh, Nashville um, is kind of a strange one. It's a place called King Market. Um, it is a Thai restaurant. It is the best Thai food I have ever had. It is, you walk into this convenience store, um, like a small Asian market, and then on the right side of the, of the market, there's this little carve out, and it is the best pad tea I've ever had. They have this like market sausage with this like cashew sauce and sticky rice, and it's just, they just, the best versions of all that stuff I've ever had. Dallas, this is going to be a bit self serving because it's in the restaurant group I'm joining, but it's a steakhouse called the Tango Room. Um, we went there for the first time about a week ago. 15 table, very refined Art Deco style steakhouse. It is the best traditional French style tartare I've ever had in my entire life. Everything is just executed so very well. And it's one of the only restaurants we can go to. And my wife can ask for her favorite cocktail, the Pink Lady. And they not only know what it is, but make a great version of it. If you're in Dallas, go to the Tango Room. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you haven't been that you want to go to, place you haven't eaten that you want to go to. I just got the cookbook today, Estabari Hospador in Spain, the grill-centric restaurant. Um, I think the top 10 best restaurants in the world. I would fly there tomorrow if I could eat. Um, and then bucket list destination, uh, I mean, it's got to be... Hong Kong or Tokyo. I've never been to Asia, but using one of those cities as a jumping off point to then explore Japan and China and Vietnam. But one of those trying to get to Singapore later this year, but craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Hmm. I mean, 
Almost getting punched by Renee was pretty insane. Um, oh, I will not name the restaurant where this happens, but um, it is one of the nicer places I've worked. There was a VIP table, and the chefs were preparing a whole call fat wrapped monkfish tail, um, and it was resting, ready to go. And I guess one of the edges had been resting too close to a burner. You go to pick it up, one of the hand, one of the sides slips out of the chef's hands, hits the ground. Monkfish tail falls and slides on the floor. Pick it up, put it back on the tray, and go ahead and serve it anyway. And this is one of the nicest restaurants I have ever been to. But it was, uh, the kitchen just went silent. It happened. And I don't think anyone ever talked about it ever again. There was no, you know, that was insane. And then the, yeah, the, uh, the cult of silence surrounding it that followed was also uh, pretty insane. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that going through a grocery store, you try and avoid that aisle because this thing's down there or, you know, fast food or anything like that, that you're like, I know this is terrible for me, but I just can't help it. Oh, all of it. I'm, I'm the least, I am so not a food snob. I mean, it's going to be as ridiculous, but um, my favorite go-to lunch is Kroger sushi. I'll eat that shit happily. Um, I know that's terrible, but um, whatever. I know it's not going to make me sick. It was frozen as soon as they cut it or when they cut it. And then drink-wise, I don't really have anything. I drink, like when I drink white wine or rosé or even like a really light-bodied red, I don't put a lot in the glass and I want it really cold and I tend to drink it quickly. I put ice in that shit sometimes if it's hot outside. <laughs> like, But not like a little bit of ice so it melts, like a lot of ice so it just stays really cold. But yeah, there's my... Just me outing myself. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of you can look back on your career thus far and kind of point to that dish that you created and it's kind of like your aha moment that you knew you could do this professionally. I think the thing that, the dish that I made that I'll have it on the menu when I open this place, um, it was like 2019's Eater Dish of the Year in Nashville. It's the ricotta agnolotti that I do with Salsa Calabria and Parmesan. It's dead simple, but it it was when I um, kind of realized that it's okay to strip everything unnecessary away and just leave what needs to be there. And I think it's as close to a perfect dish as I'll ever make. It hits all the notes on the palate. It's, you know, the pasta is perfect and the ricotta and you get it just right and that smooth texture, that's, that's the dish. And I'm very proud of it. So. Yep, had that at that set sun. It was on the menu there. It is very, very delicious. I can say that firsthand. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that always kind of stands out to you about him? Or if you weren't, is there another TV personality, culinary influencer that you kind of gravitated towards when you were kind of coming up? A Cook's Tour, the French Laundry episode. I think I saw that when it was on air in like 2002. And again, yeah, it always comes back to Keller. When they made him the menthol custard mid-meal because he couldn't go smoke a Marlboro, four people had four separate 22-course tasting menus. And Bourdain, obviously, I, you know, he was a fantastic writer, but, you know, not known as, like, the greatest chef in the world. He just has a great perspective on the culinary world. The shock and awe on his face like it's like you could barely talk throughout the meal um that was impressive like and it was like i think michael woolman was at the table with him and 
I mean, Eric Repair, if I'm not mistaken, and somebody else. Even Eric Repair is like, it's like that story when Clapton sees Hendrix play guitar and it's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? And like Repair's at the table and it's like Keller in full form, like probably at the restaurant every day. It's just like, I can't imagine, obviously Eric Repair is an incredible chef, but can't imagine what it was like as a fellow three mission star chef to sit at that table and see what Keller was doing at the time and just be gobsmacked. Like it must've been incredible. And I, I return to that um, video a couple times a year on YouTube because it left such an impact. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, all that stuff. Plug everything. Sure. Instagram is jason.zigmont. The sauce company is black cactus Dallas. You know, I'm, there's been a bunch written up. So a simple Google search of Chef Jason Zygmunt will lead you in all the right directions. Uh, I don't have a personal website, but if you need to find me, I'm pretty easy to find. Does the restaurant that you're going to be working at, they got an Instagram too, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the restaurant is called Sassetta, S-A-S-S-E-T-T-A, part of the Headington Group, looking for an opening early next year, sometime around Valentine's Day or March, somewhere in there. So... But we're working on it right now. Um, the kitchen is basically complete. It's just front of house construction. So we're going to be starting the difficult process of hiring soon. So we'll see how that goes. Best of luck with the hiring. It's awesome that you're going to be back in the kitchen. I think it was the kind of pork ribs that you had on the menu at Set Sun, where I'm not a big rib person. You know, I've had food poisoning a handful of times from different ribs. So I'm always kind of leery of, of ordering them. But I know you know, when I'm at a good restaurant and a chef who knows what they're doing and, and cares and everything, sometimes you you take the jump and those were phenomenal, as was the highlight dish of the, the ricotta and lati too, as well. As, it was amazing. Everything was great, you know, at Set Sun. It was everything had like a, it was stuff that you would encounter food on menus at other restaurants, but there was a twist. Like I remember even one of the desserts, I think it was like an apple panna cotta, but there was like little mini like chunks of apple i think like in there too as well and that's not something that is traditionally in like an you know a panna cotta or anything but it all just had like a little twist that was the ethos basically of uh that time is like we were under such restrictions in terms of space and everything we necessarily had to whittle it down to like the bare essentials so it was like all right we're gonna do and we do spaghetti and meatballs we're gonna make the best fucking meatball we can it's gonna be a four-day process the noodles are going to be alkaline, so like ramen noodles, and they're going to have sourdough starter in them. So it's going to remind you of not only spaghetti meatballs, but also meatball sub, and it's going to be somewhere between. And so the technique was always forward, but if you didn't care about that stuff, you would still have a delicious, perfect plate of spaghetti and meatballs in front of you. But for the people that do care, there would be so much below the surface if they wanted to know about it. It was an awesome experience. You know, sad to see it go, but like I said, it's awesome that you're back in the kitchen. Going to be back in there soon. So I don't know when we'll make it through the the Texas area. Hopefully, you know, sometime there's a lot of cool stuff that's just happening in Texas and the food scene in different cities. So it'd be cool to kind of run through all of them for a few days. So hopefully be able to make it out there in 2022 and, and stop in and definitely see what you're doing. Anytime you want to come on the podcast, have something to promote, doesn't always have to be, you know, two hours. I know we ran over time here, but anytime, you know, you need anything from us, don't hesitate to reach out. Congratulations on everything. Yes, stay in touch and hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Let me know if you come through Dallas, all right? A big thanks again to Chef Jason Zygmunt for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off uh, while he's getting ramped up for uh, the reopening of Sassetta in Dallas this fall. Again, you can follow him on Instagram at jason.zigmont 
also check out his salsa page, uh, Black Cactus. That's on Instagram too as well, at Black underscore Cactus underscore Dallas, D-A-L. For short, basically have it as on Instagram. Also check out the Sassetta page. It's at Sassetta underscore Dallas on Instagram. They didn't really post too much yet, but I'm sure they'll be ramping up here as they get closer to reopening. And check us out on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We do have a YouTube page. We put everything up there, but mainly uh, you want to follow or subscribe on Apple or Spotify, but we're on all the major platforms, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, Audible, like all that stuff, uh, Spreaker, you know, any podcast app you can pretty much find us on. So make sure to follow and subscribe there. Uh, that'll help us out. Appreciate everybody listening. Um, feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback. We are doing a kind of new edition of the podcast here coming up, moving forward in next set of episodes will be a fan question component. So feel free to write in any questions that you think of that you'd ever want to ask a chef, a sommelier, a restaurant owner. And I'll go through them and assign kind of the, the one that's the best to the corresponding person. So we put a thing up on Reddit. We had some feedback from that. We got a list of questions that we're asking everybody, but feel free to send those in either through the website. If you go to spoonmob.com, there's a contact portal uh, on the website, or you can email us, you know, directly spoonmob at yahoo.com. Anything that you ever thought of asking a, a chef or a restaurant owner, sommelier, bartender, anything, and uh, we'll get it uh, incorporated kind of with the, the person that it best fits with. So appreciate everybody listening, continue to help spread the word. Been an awesome experience so far. So we got a bunch more episodes on the way and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.